You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. I have a tremendous schus uh, here today, uh, a COVID, but in some ways, I want to tell you, it's like I'm looking in a mirror. <laughs> I'm talking with a, a fellow podcaster, uh, Rabbi Scott Kahn, who is the CEO and I would say the creative power behind jewishcoffeehouse.com. Uh, Rabbi Khan, uh, we know each other uh, in many iterations, but the, the first one and the most primary one is one that I'll always have Hakkara Satov to you for, is that you are my son's Rebbe, my son's Rosh Hashiva. Um, I know you as, uh, uh, originally, as the Rashiva of Yeshiva Sisodia Torah, uh, a Yeshiva that was in... Um, it was in, tell me where it was again. It was in, it was in Moshav Zanoach, which is right next to Beit Shemesh. Right, Moshav Zanoach. And it's such an incredible name because I think that the yeshiva, what it did is Adover Shah Ma'oda Yamuznach. In other words, your yeshiva was 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 doing something which, unfortunately, other yeshivas had ignored and wasn't weren't really involved in. Um, I knew about you, Scott, because uh, because your yeshiva. <laughs> gave out the best swag that was possible for me as a high school Rebbe, which was the easily holdable key Gemara terms that were laminated and you could pass them out. I, I, I never had a problem asking my students to refer to them. So even before my son became your Talmud, I, I knew that this place means something. And I, and I wanted, and, and, and again, I'm not just buttering you up because uh, you know, because I. Well, you're doing a good job. So yes, yes, I am. Yes, but I'll tell you the one of the the, the greatest periods I had learning with my son, uh, Nachemu, growing up with him, was when he came back from Yisode, and he wanted to learn with me and learn something based on the derech that he was makabel from you, and we sat and learned for hours together, and I saw how much. It wasn't just my Rebbe is a cool guy. My Rebbe, I get along with him. I go to his house and we got parties and he's a great guy and I want to be a bent over like him. I saw that what you are involved in is actually making a difference, coming up with things that are real. It's not about the panache and the flair. It's about substance. And those substantive learning sessions I had with him on the Gemara Rashi and, and reading the Rashi's over and being omed on it, I'm going to take that to my Gan Eden as some of the best learning that I ever did with my son. And that's also a credit to you. But but you, right now, you and myself and many others have moved in the last couple of years away from the, the brick and mortar. And you were really a pioneer, Scott, right, in, in, in this field of creating a platform. So talk a little bit about what this platform is, because it's, 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 it's sort of like a mirror of what I'm doing, but a little bit of a... Of a <laughs> Before I get there, I want to mention that, as you mentioned Hakar Tatov to me, trust me, my Hakar Tatov to you is equal, because you sent me such a wonderful student like Nehemia, someone who really, I, I hope, as you say, benefited from our yeshiva, but we certainly benefited from having someone like that with us. Our yeshiva, as you said left in the corner a little bit, not so popular. At the same time, those who came, we were very fortunate. We got some amazing guys who, as we say, heard the vort. They understood what we were offering. So thank you for sending us your son and thereby making the yeshiva that much better a place. So I want to say that first, because it certainly is true. Okay, well, I, you know what? We got to make sure that Nehemi gets first dibs on hearing this recording, but go ahead. Yes. <laughs> anyway, in terms of what I did, after the yeshiva closed, we've been open for 11 years. 
I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do next, but within a year or two, I decided that I wanted to move into what was then the relatively new uh, field of podcasting. And part of that was creating this site called JewishCoffeeHouse.com, which would be effectively a an orthodox podcast network, but orthodox defined broadly, meaning I wasn't the Hashkafa police. I'm not saying, telling people what they can say. It's generally and broadly it's bullseye, I should say, is really for the Orthodox community, but we get listeners who come from outside the Jewish community altogether, and certainly outside the Orthodox community, but all of our podcasts are hosted by people who are Orthodox in their own orientation, and I think that we have some wonderful podcasts that try to, I'm not going to say push the envelope, it's not actively trying to push the envelope, but we try to deal with authentic topics that may not be addressed in most other places, so for example, I host a weekly podcast called Orthodox Conundrum, which deals with real issues in the Jewish community and the Orthodox from world, both the good and the bad. And frankly, with a little bit more of an emphasis on those things that need improvement, we're able to cause improvement, but hopefully we can enlighten people and let them know things that do need some work. Another podcast, which I co-host with my friend, Tali Rosenbaum, she's a couples and sex therapist. It's called Intimate Judaism. There we talk about intimacy, sexuality. I come usually with a halachic and ashkafic perspective, trying to give my best idea of what the Torah would say about certain things. We, we, no, no topic is off limits. And uh, Tali comes from a, a therapeutic perspective. And together, we don't always agree, but we put together, I think, an important conversation that otherwise would be missing. And there are many other podcasts on the site as well. Yeah, let's talk about those two, first of all. You know, um, you know, again, the Orthodox conundrum, there's so much criticism, especially in Eretz Yisrael, about Haredim, about what's wrong with them. Obviously, as you say, orthodoxy is a German term uh, that really refers to, it's more the Hersheyan ortho, neo-orthodoxy than it is what we would call uh, the, the yeshivisha orthodoxy. But still, the conundrum are some of the issues that probably have been plaguing um, the Haredi and modern Orthodox world that we've been hearing a lot about, um, you know, with various uh, scandals in Eretz Yisrael, even before Walder, in terms of uh, COVID uh, fealty to COVID restrictions, um, and, and, and the sense of here in the United States of you know of Orthodoxy playing fast and loose with uh, the rules. Uh, and various, and very unfortunately, various FBI sting operations yeah. have, mm-hmm. have have underscored that. So th- there's a lot, I'm sure, in uh, in terms of criticism. Uh, I, I think that's an easy thing to do. Uh, I engage in similar type of you know, com- comments and observations about it in the various podcasts that we have. But I think what's probably harder to get is not only give over the information, but also generate positivity and show that you're not just trying to do a hatchet job on the status quo, right? Absolutely. That's something which I will say I struggle with. I don't want it to sound like I'm just trying to trying to trash everyone who doesn't think like me. I wonder if sometimes it might come across like that, but that's certainly not my goal. From a larger perspective, my goal, I suppose, is that I would like to see things that are not good be fixed. Therefore, it's some, in some levels, better to talk about those things rather than celebrate what we're doing right, although that has to be done as well. So, I mean, but it's, it's not just one segment of the Orthodox community. Last week, we talked about uh, I was dealing with Das Torah and some elements and issues that I have with Das Torah. This coming episode next week, Bezrat Hashem, is going to be talking about the, the rape case at YU. So it's, it's, there are problems everywhere. But you're right. It's easy on some level. It's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's kind of easy to talk about some of the big scandals that are out there. And it's, it's, it's maybe too easy. Um, there certainly has to be an element of this is coming from a place of love, not from a place of orthodoxy is terrible. It's saying I'm inside because I'm inside. I'm trying to fix it, not destroy it. My goal 
as I'm sure everyone who talks about it from inside, our goal is to try and make things better. And when something that you love and that you think is true and that you think is important and that you think is godly and divine is not living up to the standards that the Torah itself sets for us, our job has to be, no, we have to try and stop this chil Hashem. We have to try to stop this violation of Torah thought and Torah norms and fix it. Celebrating that which is good is less media at times, um, but that has to be done too. Sure. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, I noticed when I uh, perused the site a little bit before our recording today was that someone that I've had this host to have conversations with and uh, be in contact with, uh, I think one of the, you know, one of the premier scholars of the latter part of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, the Professor Mark Shapiro, uh, mm-hmm. was the one who was holding forth on it. And of course, we all owe Mark uh, a tremendous debt of gratitude in terms of his research and in terms of uh, the clarity of his of his thoughts and what he's been able to accomplish. But I know that Mark himself is a person, and again, without uh, without judging, is a person that for many people who might be your listening audience might say, well, hmm, Mark Shapiro, it sounds like you are uh, moving towards a certain direction. I'll, I'll tell you, and again, I'll tell you, I don't want, need you to comment on that, but I'll tell you that, so, so I'm just wondering, you know, you don't shy away from people that have had their share of controversy, right? That's true. I mean, my general rule is that, I, I suppose there's some people I'm sure I wouldn't want to have my podcast, but if someone I think can add something to the conversation, I'm happy to have him on my podcast or her on my podcast. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with everybody. Early on in the Orthodox conundrum in particular, I made a very specific decision that I was not going to play the gotcha game, that I'm not a journalist in that sense. My job is to try and catch them on a question that they weren't prepared for and say, aha, see, I got you, someone whom I didn't like. I figured that if somebody does me the chesed of coming onto my podcast, if someone's that nice, then I owe it to them to act respectfully. I can, I can say I disagree with them. I might say, I don't think that's true. I often will make comments like that at the beginning in my opening, which I record after I've already recorded the interview. That way I look like a novice. I say, we're about to talk about the following, and I'm right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. We, but, all, but we know, Scott, both of us, we're always able to edit and basically frame it the way we want. But you know, Demonstrating the making of the sausage, I suppose. <laughs> it's never so pretty. Well, as but somebody, I, uh, as someone who works in a sausage factory, I can tell you, I know exactly how that works. I'm a mashkiach right. at A and H, as you might have heard. <laughs> and, you know, I, I give them a lot of free commercials whenever I, whenever they let me uh, 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 record on their time. But, but I will tell you that you know one of the most popular, uh, oh, let's say, from yeshivish, even towards the middle and the left. Uh, personalities in podcasting today is my very close friend, Rabbi David Katz, who has a Jewish history podcast that is just out of this world. And part of it is because of the of the power of who he is. And he said to me, you know, you've got all these programs and officially, you know, you, you have this guest and that guest, you know, it should be you. Now, is it, it, Orthodox, and I say to him, look, you know, I'm there, I'm there doing the interviews, but, you know, just like today, you know, I'm I'm not quiet as a church mouse here. I'm letting you talk, but this mm-hmm. is the Scott Kahn program today. Do you feel the same way when you're on Orthodox Conundrum when you're bringing in people like Mark or uh, let's say some other uh, thinker um, that you sort of have to have that balance between in the conversation between Scott Kahn, who's a person of strong opinions, and 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 you're and the person you're interviewing. Absolutely, I think in general, my usual feeling is that if I'm interviewing somebody. I do state my own opinions, but I largely let the other person do most of the talking. That's why they're the guest. The fact that that person is on my show does not mean I agree with everything or anything they say, although I doubt I disagree with everything. I probably wouldn't want to have them on, but it could be. But I generally want to hear what they have to say. I sometimes do have episodes. They're not 
the majority, but I have episodes where I will state my opinion. So for example, you mentioned Mark Shapiro. Last week's episode was about Das Torah, and that was Mark Shapiro talking about Das Torah throughout history, where it came from, and his opinions about it. The week before, however, I had a different episode also about Das Torah that had no guests at all. It was me speaking for 20 or 30 minutes about my opinions about where the world has gone wrong in its application of Das Torah nowadays, even though I also say that in principle, I'm okay with Das Torah. I certainly accept the concept of Emunat Chachamim, of, of trusting the, our great sages. I think that it's gone in the wrong direction. And that was almost a half an hour editorial about my own feelings about that. So sometimes I'll give my own feelings in those monologues, whereas in an interview, I largely leave it up to the other person. But of course, as you know, the nature of the questions that you ask reflect your own interests and your own concerns. So it's not just Mark Shapiro saying whatever he wants to talk about. I'm telling him specific questions and asking specific questions, which obviously he'll say what he believes, but it shows through the questions what my concerns are as well. You know, we live in a period that no one has time. I mean, we, we, we struggled ourselves to find this little uh, window for us to be able to talk. And, and, and although I tell my interviewees, the people that we're interviewing, that they have uh, carte blanche to be able to change things, you know, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be uh, any uh, worse than an SAT test, right? If you want, you call in a couple of days, you still can change stuff. I, I, I don't want a person to feel unhappy with the way they came across. And I'll tell them, do you want, I'll, I'll send you the recording and you can change stuff if you want. Uh, do you ever find that happening sometimes, let's say, an orthodox conundrum where maybe the person misspoke or he wants to take something back um, and he might talk to you about it? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it does happen. It doesn't happen that often. Usually people are pretty secure that I'm not going to make them look bad. But before the episode starts, I always tell them that I'm going to edit this. If there's something that you don't like how it came out, you don't like the answer, just let me know. However, in general, I don't give them right of editing after the recording is over. I mean, if during the interview... You say, mm, I don't really want to answer that question. I'm not comfortable. Or alternatively, can I say that again and say it in a better way? For sure, because I want them to come across the way they want to come across. I don't want them to say, we all say things by mistake that we didn't really mean. If they say that's not what I meant, of course, I'll let them do it. However, in general, I prefer for them not to have editorial oversight. Um, there are certain situations in certain very, very sensitive subjects where I will let them have editorial oversight. But in general, that's not the normal way I do it. I tell them, if during the recording you want to change something, let me know. If immediately afterwards there's something that bothers you, let me know. But if once it's up, unless there's a real problem, like there's, a, let's say, some Moti Shamer or something else which I hadn't caught or something which is simply not true, in general, at that point, it, it's already out. It's what it is. And it's never actually happened to the best of my knowledge. It's, oh, I'm, no, now I remember one. But the other program that you mentioned, the Intimate Judaism. Now, yeah. I have a program as well, as you know, that's called Standing in Two Worlds. And I, I don't know if Tali and, and Sam Juni know each other, but Sam is also a, uh, a, a very uh, interesting Orthodox Freudian uh, psychologist who is uh, who, who's very much uh, his own person and has a lot of interesting opinions that are very different. And then, well, that's why we're standing in two worlds. Um, so the, the concept I get, what I was wondering about, though, since you're talking about intimacy and you're talking with a woman and you're not talking with your Rebetzin, you're talking with uh, another woman, another married yeah. woman, that seems to me like like ready-made problems right there. Uh, oh, absolutely. So, so tell me, so, so tell me why, why that, why, why did you choose a woman to have that conversation with, and why did you have to be the interlocutor? Maybe you could fail. Maybe you could have had intimate Judaism with two other women or something like that. It's a good question, and I'll point out that before I agreed to start this podcast, I actually spoke with a couple of my rebbeim to make sure that this wasn't a violation of the norms of sinuot or anything else. 
In fact, one of them, one of the rebbeim I asked, he said, "Is my wife okay with the fact that I'm having this conversation about intimacy with a woman who's not my wife?" And I pointed out that she's the one who's pushing me to do it. I wasn't as ready to do it as she was. This is when we started over three years ago. My wife, Elisa, really wanted me to do it. She thought it was very important. And once I said that, the Rob said that you can do it. Part of the reason that I wanted to do it specifically with Tali is, first of all, I'd interviewed her in a different context for an early episode of Orthodox Conundrum. And Intimate Judaism was almost a spinoff from that episode. She is very, very talented and extraordinarily knowledgeable. So you have to find the right person. And the idea of having either two men or two women talk about intimacy, I think, would fundamentally alter or it wouldn't really work because we're talking about issues that are relevant to both men and women, to couples, and not to only men or only to women. I think that having two men talk about it or two women talk about it, a very important perspective would be missing. Now, again, I admit I'm not a sex therapist and I don't you know, obviously we don't talk about our own experiences. We're talking about, I'm talking about halacha. I'm talking about ashkafa and asking questions. And Tali's doing the same. She's offering therapeutic advice. At the same time, the idea of having uh, two people of the same gender talking to couples, which is what we're really doing very often, not exclusively, but largely, I think would have been a mistake. So why me? Because this is what I do. And I thought it was an important thing to to go. I don't want to overstate my role here, but, you know, Makom Sheinish, if there's no one else doing it, that's important to do it. There are other people like you yourself who are doing this kind of work. I can see from the feedback that Tali and I get with intimate Judaism that we are really providing a very important service because so many people simply don't know. They, ha- they come with this attitude, which I understand where it comes from, that if you have to ask a rabbi, the answer is no. And therefore, they assume that all sorts of things that they, for whatever reason, issues that they have in the bedroom, they don't even ask because they think there's nothing to talk about. It's causing strains in their marriages. Just from the feedback that I get, I see that we really are opening conversations and allowing people to talk about talk about issues that otherwise would remain closed behind closed doors. We're very careful about Nibel Pad. I don't. It's, it's not just wanton cursing, but at the same time, we're we're very frank. We use the correct terms. We speak about anatomy. We don't hide. We don't try to hide behind metaphors or other sorts of discussions that people would be confused about. I think it's important in a context like this to be open and frank and talk about the way it is. And so far, thank God, we've been very successful doing that. Who generates the topics for the, is it done every week, every two weeks? How, how generally do you? And, and, for, and for, you, well, for Orthodox Gondrum, that's a weekly. Intimate Judaism is a monthly. So Tali and I just discuss it together, you know, figure out what issues are we've heard about. We also receive a large amount of feedback from listeners. And sometimes our topics are generated uh-huh. from the issues that they talk about. Even last year, for example, I remember saying that I wanted to do a birth control episode. So we didn't have time last year. We had a full schedule. We ended up doing our past two episodes were two episodes on birth control. One of them was largely talking about whether, at least from my perspective, Tali had other things that she talked about. I said, is birth control mutar in general? Forget methods. It's the idea of birth control for a married couple. When is it allowed? When is it not allowed? What are the issues? What are the sources that go behind it? The second episode, we also interviewed a physician in that episode where we talked about methods of birth control, both from a health perspective, as well as from a therapeutic and halakhic perspective. What's more acceptable, what's less acceptable, assuming that it's a context in which birth control is already acceptable. So that was something which I've been talking to my own students about for a while. I figure it's time to do a topic. So I'll come up with a topic. Tali will come up with a topic. And somehow we figure it out. And just so much to discuss that we, you know, 
there's plenty there's plenty to talk about. We're not running out of topics, that's for right. sure. Right. But what's interesting is the dynamic. First of all, you know, you know, as someone who does a weekly program with a psychologist, or I try to make it weekly, I know that it's tough uh, generating topics every week. The fact that you have a month and a couple of weeks to prep and to work on it obviously allows you to produce a better program. We all know, though, however, that in the podcast world, you know, everybody wants the feed. They, they want to see what's going on. And, and if you disappear for a month in this space, someone they're going to find Ben Shapiro to listen to. Right. They're going to find some or, or some other sex therapy orthodox show who is either mimicking you or doing something different. So we, we, we sort of feel in, in this space. This edu- this educational info space, you know, uh, that we'd want to come up with stuff. I-, I think it's a it's a credit when you have a um, a following that they're going to ha- hang on for three weeks. In other words, they're going to they're they're going to hang on for a month till the next show drops. So you really have to yeah. build that. You really have to build that following to make sure that uh, so that'll happen. I guess the other thing I would say about this is that what I have noticed in my you know foray here and it's you know i'm a couple of years behind you is that the best partner is one that you don't have to keep on knocking on their door and keep on sending them reminders uh mm-hmm. it's someone who for whatever reason it's definitely not the recompensation it's definitely not the money they're getting but they actually appreciate it they enjoy it uh, they feel that it's something that, that that's important for them and it, that, that's the type of partnership i guess you have with tali that she's investing it she's not just you know this is not just oh now scott is calling me and i gotta i gotta go in and do this she's she's she enjoys doing it and i think that's you always want to look when you have a partner program that the other that it's as my father used to say this all and it has to be something that it's a uh, and then he would say in his european english a two-way street that has to be so <laughs> i i think you're you're you know that's a big muzzle there um i go even further than that and agree completely i'm very fortunate to have a co-host like tali who's fantastic and I, I lucked out with having her. I would say that's not just a matter of doing it because otherwise you're knocking down someone's door and saying, come on, we got to do the episode. It's also that it's reflected in the dynamic. If one person doesn't really want to be there, you're going to have a more inferior podcast, it would seem to me, unless the person's an extraordinarily good actor. You know, thankfully, Tali and I are both happy to be there. We're both very dedicated to the podcast and invested in it. So it, it works out great. I think, I think the results are very good. I'm really proud of them. And I'm, again, very pleased to have her as a co-host. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, one of, and again, I, you realize that all of this is really surreptitious way for me to plug all my programs. You see, this, Of course, that, that, and, and I would do the same, obviously. <laughs> but one of the shows that I have... It's all about the ratings. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I don't think we'll see who listens here. But, but, but Scott, you know, one of the things that, that I have, you mentioned about bringing in guests, you know, you, Tali, and another person. Um, in my programs... Uh, either standing in two worlds, uh, but especially in a program that I do about criminal justice reform, I have been uh, managing uh, a a cadre of people. I mean, we have a panel and that is a very tough thing to do. Uh, Again, you know, when you, when you think about it, like, you know, even, you know, when in in studio, like face the nation or meet the press, you know, they had 20 people in the, uh, in in the control room, figuring out where the camera goes and what to do. And they have a bunch of people editing the videotape. It's a hard thing when it's, when the dynamic, when you throw in a guest or two guests, Um, you know, how have you been managing that? I mean, I, I think that you're right. It definitely is difficult. Generally, I try in, on, in general not to have more than one guest at a time, although they're just that much easier, even just from an editing perspective. It's more difficult. The more tracks you have, the more difficult it is to edit, the longer it takes. But sometimes it's just a matter of making sure that 
you understand and people know the ground rules in advance that if you want to speak, make sure you raise your hand. You have to tell them how or however you pointed out. Nowadays, everything's on Zoom. So in some ways, it's easier. But you're able to say, if you want to speak, you know, and I, I put it like using the old Lord of the Flies uh, metaphor that one person has to be holding the conch. And I, if, it's, if I'm the host, then I'll be holding the conch and I'll give the conch to you. But make sure you know that one person sort of has the right to interrupt and makes things go in a certain way. I think preparation is an important part. If I don't prepare, I feel that the podcast will inevitably not be as strong. I always try to think in advance, map it out on some level, write an outline write some basic questions. And I also feel free, as I'm sure you do, to depart from whatever preparations I had based on what's going on during the podcast. It has to be free-flowing. It can't be scripted. But at the same time, if you have a basic idea of where you're going to go, it makes it that much easier and it avoids anarchy in that way. That's my experience, at least. No, no, I agree 100%. And of course, this what we're doing now is is breaking all those rules. So I just want to <laughs> point that out. Uh, what's you, you mentioned about Zoom. And, and I think... You know, we started our podcast before Zoom. I think every single uh, platform uh, became enhanced uh, almost on steroids when Zoom, uh, every, when, with the pandemic and Zoom. First of all, people were looking for other stuff to listen to. People were, people, uh, even if they were at home exercising, but also the, uh, the acceptance, let's say, of having a guest knowing you can get them on Zoom. It, it, it's, it all of a sudden became an obvious thing. Hey, you can join us for this recording because everybody had Zoom. Everybody was using it. Um, so there's, there's been an incredible increase, I think, since the pandemic began. I know that on the platform that we use, which is used by a number of Jewish podcasts, since we started two years ago, it's probably uh, has five times as many podcasts. Now, we all know that there's a limited amount of Jewish listeners. So Zoom has clearly been, in, in one way, a great benefit of bringing people there, but it's also crowded the field in a way. So w- respond to that, if you will. In what sense? I mean, what do we do about that crowded field? That's one thing. And secondly, you know, do, do you feel that everything is positive since Zoom? Since Zoom came in, since the pandemic and Zoom came in, do you think it's all been a positive? And also respond to the fact that there's a lot of different people jostling for a limited amount of people's ear time. Yeah. So I'll answer both questions. Those are two excellent questions. I don't think that Zoom has obviously been all positive. Certainly there is something special about being in the same room with somebody when you're talking to an interview guest and you can not only see their face, but you can see their hand motion to get a better feel for where they are for, for that personal interaction. Nevertheless, I think at least when it comes to podcasting, Zoom has been a boon. It's been very, very helpful for me to the point that now if people are going to come on my show and they offer to come in person, I'll say, no, you know, it's actually easier for me over Zoom. It requires just in terms of editing and many other reasons, I actually prefer in some ways to interview my guests over Zoom in many contexts. That's not true for a co-host. You know, when we have a co-host, I make sure that the co-host, Holly and I each have our strong microphones. It's, it's a different sort of situation. But a guest, I actually enjoy having it over Zoom. In terms of the crowded field, obviously you and I are dealing with the same problem. It's sometimes difficult to get noticed when there are so many out there, there's so many podcasts. I've compared it to this. And I thought this was my muscle. My wife told me that I heard it from somebody else. So whoever that is, that person gets the credit. But the muscle I do is I say is this. Imagine that you have an office building that's 100 floors tall. And on every store, you got 50 restaurants. It's an office building with 100 floors and 50 restaurants on every floor, 5,000 restaurants. And you, your podcast is on the 72nd floor, you know, room 23. How are you, is anyone going to show up to your restaurant, even if your restaurant is the absolute best restaurant there? Why is anybody going to show up? So 
at least in my own experience, the best answer is to make it a little bit different from every other restaurant. Not that it's the best at what everyone else is doing, because they're still not going to notice you. If I have a podcast about football, I don't. But if I had a podcast about football, even if it were the best football podcast in the world, why is anybody going to find it? There's so many other football podcasts. No one will even know I'm there. No one's going to bother showing up to the 72nd floor. But if you have a very specific stance, it's a little bit different. You deal with something from a very unique or a unique perspective that others aren't doing, then maybe you'll get noticed. You start off with a small audience and with persistence and not giving up, you can eventually build it up to a much larger audience as people start to discover you. And that's part of the other issue, which is that in terms of getting discovered and allowing people to see you, it is a crowded field, but I find that a lot of people drop out very, very quickly. My friend Francisca, who hosts a show that is also on my network, the Francisca show, she mentioned to me that the average podcast lasts seven episodes, which means that people start off, they're all excited, and then they give up. As long as you don't give up and you're willing to realize this is a long haul, this is a marathon, not a sprint, you're willing to put in that time, and it might take a couple years or longer before anyone notices you're out there in any big numbers, but I think that might be the difference. It's a matter of dedicating yourself to it, being consistent, putting it out, even when a lot of people aren't listening, and eventually, Bezrat Hashem, you grow, hopefully, as long as you have good content. Well, you know, I know speaking with my nephew and other people who have successful podcasts, the Rabbi Katz I mentioned before, the analytics that, that every single platform uh, spits back are maddeningly uh, unspecific. And because of that, <laughs> you know, you can always get frustrated about, you know, are they listening? Did they download it? What's going on? And I can imagine that when, especially when the numbers just peter in, you know, it's 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 tantamount to getting the rejection letters uh, from when you send your novel to Random House and 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 and, and for all star, star and, and everybody's rejecting it. And you sort of feel like, what am I doing here? I'm just wasting time. And you yeah. don't realize, again, the, the way things work today in terms of word of mouth, the fact that the cloud in some ways keeps things forever in some ways. And, and you never know, you know, when I was looking at the analytics uh, yesterday, you know, I saw a podcast from two or three years ago that had more downloads than something that I put up, uh, you know, two days ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's what a lot of podcasters need to know. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned the Francisca show and, and you talked about, you know, your, your uh, collaboration with Tali on uh, intimate Judaism. And you have another program called Chochmas Noshim, which is all women. Uh, let my people eat, which I, I I looked a little bit, and some great recipes over there. It, it would seem, you know, Rabbi Scott Kahn, despite being, you know, the Rosh Hashiva and and the Rav, there is this Jewish coffee house. You know, I think Linda Richmond would be very uh, comfortable there. You know, from yeah, you know, <laughs> talk among yourselves, talk among yourselves. There's a lot of Yiddish balabastas here. There's a lot. I'm not saying they're they're doctors, they're lawyers. They're they're dietitians, but it's I, I think your 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 platform does seem to be have, seems to be very a lot of heavy centered towards the feminine perspective. Again, I know everything I say now is obviously incorrect socially, but there seems to be a lot of women on your programs. I think that's true, and. I'm not going to say that it was a deliberate decision that Jewish Coffee House will be a place for women podcasters. That was never what I was thinking. It turned out that way. I look at a podcast when people want to put their podcasts on my platform. I look at the podcast. I look at the quality of the podcast. And if I think it's good, I put it up there. The fact that uh, it has largely been female podcasters who have used Jewish Coffee House as a place to house their podcasts is Maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's something else, but certainly not something which I did deliberately, but I'm really happy about it. I think that the podcasts we have are really good. The fact that they're often hosted by women, though not all of them, but that some of them are hosted by women, that's great. And 
from my perspective, whoever does a good podcast, that's the person who should be hosted on my platform. There used to be more men on the platform. I had a couple of podcasts that are no longer there that were taken off because either the person stopped doing the podcast or it was a podcast that I did, which I spun off into something else, a baseball podcast. And this is what's left. The fact of the matter is, you know, new ones have come in to replace them. I, that, this turned, turned out that way. And I think that's great. We have perfectly good with me. Look, I have been, I've been trying to get women guests and we've had a number of times this program I do with Rabbi Bechoffer, his wife came on a couple of times. She of course is a very outspoken and, 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 and a person who has, has strong opinions about things and, and, and expressed in a very able way, I should say, uh, on my program uh, about criminal justice reform we had a female chaplain and a female caseworker uh, plus a, a woman who worked with the royal canadian mounted police and mothers of various mm-hmm. prisoners so women i feel is crucial because it, the audience is out there for men and women uh right. and, and and i've actually think it to myself you know what i, I sometimes feel it's a challenge to get women because i think people see our a platform which is called the yeshiva of newark as opposed to jewish coffee house and i think there's sort of a sense well why do i want to be there you know in other words <laughs> I, you know why do i it's almost like why are you calling me aren't you a yeshiva podcast and and right. and, and, and and our ratings you know on the independent uh you know sort of these i don't know who who they are but these independent you know uh sites that say the top yeshiva podcast that's where you're going to find us and, and i actually would like to have more women involved. Are, are, are you finding that perhaps maybe you know, the people who are listening to your program is disproportionately women, or do you have any idea based on the analytics? Um, based on analytics, I don't know, because analytics, as you said, are notoriously vague when it comes to podcast apps, like looking at your st- you know, the stats that you have. So I can't tell who's actually listening. I, I know a lot about people who are listening, but in terms of their gender, I know nothing at all there. However, anecdotally from other things that I see, for example, I have um, a couple of Facebook groups that deal with my podcast is like a, a Northwest conundrum discussion group on Facebook, seeing who comments on the podcast, seeing who comments on that. I think it's probably pretty equal men and women. I don't know if that's true for every podcast. I can only speak about the podcast that I produce myself, such as the ones like uh, Orthodox conundrum management Judaism, but by and large, in terms of who listens to mine, I think it's, it's not weighted towards uh, men or women. I think it's everybody, but at the same time, you're not uh, sure. Surprise! But I, <laughs> I can't really know. As you said, it's hard to know. The analytics are somewhat vague. I want to mention one thing that you, before I could let us. You mentioned in terms of you know feeling like this, you're getting a rejection letter, and I've certainly felt that way. It's something which I've worked hard at, but something my wife pointed out, which I think is a really important attitude, is that, and I tell people this once she showed me, and I realized she really is right. Let's say, for example, someone has a podcast and 20 people listen. Well, 20 people listening to a podcast might be in some people's minds. I'm using quotes now. A failure. 20 people listen. But defining success and failure in terms of numbers like that, I think is a pretty big mistake. Imagine you were to lecture in a room and 20 people showed up to hear you. Well, that's, that's, that's not bad. 20 people want to hear me say what I'm about to say. So 20 people suddenly, a classroom, voluntarily, anyone can come and everyone is coming and they're listening to every word because they, if they don't want to be there, they'll just turn it off. All of these people, 20 people listening. If you get 100 people, 100 people, well, it's not a huge podcast, but I got 100 people, 100 people, a room of 100 people, lecture to 100 people, that is a lot. If we're talking about financial rewards from podcasting, something which I wish I knew more about, if we were talking about financial rewards, then success could be defined in a very specific way. How much money did you make? But if we're not talking only about how much money you make, we're talking about audience size, I think that success can be widened without fooling ourselves. Just You can make a big impact on 20, 50, 100, 200 people 
that, that's a lot of people listening. That's a lot more than I ever spoke to in my yeshiva. <laughs> okay. You're making me feel a little bit better now because, you know, I, I constantly, you know, we get feedback, right? You don't necessarily get the feedback that you're hoping for. You know, you know that's feed- not my experience, actually. Yeah. Uh, I apologize for interrupting. My experience sure. has not been that. I certainly get my share. I'm not going to call it hate mail. I don't get hate mail. But people who don't like it, who disagree, told me they think that I'm wrong about something. And that's great. I don't mind feedback. As long as they're listening, positive or negative feedback, I'm happy with all of it. But I've also received, thankfully, some real positive feedback telling me they really enjoyed the show, that they thought it made an important point. And people who tell me uh, they don't. But I, I wouldn't say it's weighted towards negative. Not for yeah, me. Well, again, I'm just saying in general, when it comes to online feedback we know that most of it is negative that's true uh, right now i know that we've also gotten i have people that that that, that you know keep on giving me physic and telling me oh, we love the show thanks for sending stuff in this was maybe this is a good topic and you i'm sure have the same experience um but you know and we always encourage that i think that one of the things that we're all struggling against is that we'd like to have it in a more consistent way we'd like to be able look you know let's talk sports for a minute like four teams lost heartbreakingly over the last uh, Saturday and Sunday in the NFL, right? Right. The coaches came in the next day and had to do something that was also heartbreaking to watch the show again, to watch the game and break down the film of what they did wrong. And, 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 and there was a lot of smart people thinking about, Hey, we could have done that better, that better. We don't have the time to do that like, in our programs, right? The ability to, to actually tweak it, and, and turn it into something better. We have our gut instinct of what's going to work next time. But, 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 the, but, but those type of voices, like you have in a Toyota company where everybody is thinking and, 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 and supporting a lot of it really, as you know, is it, it's almost like a instinctual gut sense of what's going to be better. What can we do? Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that, that, that we, even in a yeshiva, like when you and, 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 uh, and, and your shutif, you would be able to have Hanhala meetings and talk about the guys. This is really in many ways a lonely place, despite the fact that you, that it's peopled with a lot of interesting, uh, right, the sense of how it's going, what exactly is happening. A lot of it is just sensing it and feeling it as opposed to having the voices where, you know, uh, you know, how you could break the film down. I, I hope I'm getting my point across about it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I'm very lucky that my wife, Eliza, she is my she's my best editor. Whenever I have a podcast that I'm about to put out, I almost always ask her to listen to it first to make sure I didn't say something really stupid that I'm going to regret later on and to make sure that it came across properly. So since I trust her 100%, I say, is, there, is this podcast okay? And she says, it's okay, then I feel comfortable releasing it. She's the one I always like to check, especially, especially if I'm dealing with something like an intimate Judaism, which inherently is somewhat controversial, some of the topics to make sure that it comes across properly. So yeah, I, I think that it is a lonely, a lonely job, but luckily I'm, my wife helps me out a lot. So that takes away the loneliness here. Yeah, let's, let's wrap this up with, you know, the big boys. Like we know whether it's, um, uh, whether it's criminal or um, what was the other one that was that that, that was everybody was talking about uh, the one serial that one serial yes yeah. criminal serial uh, the ones that that, that really like uh, you know like imploded the the whole or exploded the whole thing we know that they that we're talking here really about something that is as old as the, the great radio dramas of the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, the amount of technical skill that went into making the sound effects work, getting the right voice actors. Um, uh, as we know, that that's why radio was so fascinating. Uh, it isn't like, oh, we invented something new called podcasting. Uh, it really does touch 
very much the same cues of imagination and interest mm-hmm. that these radio and yet we know rabbi khan and, and of course you're very inventive and creative you, you know the, the the icons that you use we've talked about them uh, in another private conversation before how, how how appealing they are and how they really capture a little bit what you're after but there's we know that the amount of money that can go in to professionalizing a podcast like those big guys is some some is something that us little guys really you know, we would never be able to match that, right? I guess I think you're right. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that it's quite as daunting as that. It's, it's really difficult. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But let's say, for example, we were 20 years ago. To do what we're doing now would have been impossible. There's no way that we could have been able to do a recording of this quality. It just couldn't happen unless you spend thousands upon thousands of dollars buying equipment and everything else. Nowadays, you know, you go to B&H Photo, you go to Amazon, you can buy a microphone, which will sound just as good as an FM radio station sounded in the 1990s. And we're doing it for a couple hundred bucks and you can do it. it it's, a, it's, it's radically different. So there is that opportunity. I guess on the one hand that we have to accept the fact that, yes, there's still marketing machines behind the big guys that we're not going to be able to match. It just, you know, simply we don't have the funds to do that. On the other hand, at least in principle, unlike before the time of podcasts, unlike before the internet was really a big thing, where if you're not one of the big three networks on television, then big four networks, or if you don't have a radio station, you might you, you can say whatever you want, but no one's going to hear it. Now, it's completely democratized. So yes, you can't, it's not really true. Obviously, people who have tremendous marketing budgets can and will have a much bigger audience than people like us. On the other hand, at least in principle, there's nothing stopping people, millions upon millions of people from listening to our podcast. The sites can, ramp, can manage that. It's not as though it's not going to the same people. And that can be encouraging in its own way. So yes, they do have a big advantage. But I always think about our reality that we can do so much with so little now. The possibility of getting thousands of people to listen to us is no longer a pipe dream. It's something that's actually possible. And that's, uh, to me, that it keeps me going. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how it's been moving so far. And I think that, uh, you know, God willing, we'll keep growing. But I, I, I used to be more discouraged, but I noticed that being able, you know, been doing this already for five, six years, after a while, you, the numbers really do move up in a positive way. And so that has given me a lot of chizuk over the time. Right. As, as I'm sure your, your skill in terms of being able to insert the music when you need to and, and the backgrounds and all of those things, which, which people, uh, you know, are going to expect, you know, right. they're going to expect you know, somehow the, the fade music and somehow um, uh, the, especially, you know, if, if you're, if you're going to interview someone that you're going to be able to like splice different time periods together, yeah. which is what, which is what you have in, 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 in these other programs. The yeah. way I put it is that it's, it, it takes a heck of a lot of editing to make it sound like no one edited it. That's what it is. <laughs> well, I, you know, definitely uh, yeah, on that, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, Jewish education. And um, I, I think one of the things that our programs and their success need to perhaps, you know, shout out to the standard brick and mortar schools, even yeshivas, is, is there going to be an integration of the podcast approach in learning as more and more young people grow up and it doesn't look like podcasting is going to be thrown aside it doesn't look like it's a fad like disco i don't know right it doesn't look like it's <laughs> it doesn't look like it's you know people are it looks like it's just you know in fact you know i, I know that um a number of, of of very successful television programs have been built 
based on podcasts, uh, Julia mm-hmm. Roberts' Homecoming, and I think uh, Steve Martin's uh, The Murders in the Building. I think those are all based on podcasting. So podcasting is, is, is it sounds like it's it's here in a way that maybe you know it, it won't be. Uh, it, it won't be shunted aside by prestige TV. There's people are so busy on their uh, on their pelotons or whatever that they're still going to be listening to podcasts. And we know a culturization is going to take that into the Jewish world. Speculate as we close here about how perhaps podcasting or what we're doing can also be part of some sort of curriculum as well, not just like the entertainment when the guy is is, is finished with you know the, the Zman and he wants for Benastarim, he's in his room. We we understand the the, the great educational uh, potential here, and, and let me just before you answer, we both know that it's not about the method of giving over the information. It's about people wanting to be part of that conversational way of giving over the information. It, it, you and uh, you and, and, and your co-host in Intimate Judaism, you know, if you just had you know John Cameron Swayze or somebody, you just say over the uh, the maskana, so to speak, about what about what would be a healthy intimate relationship. It wouldn't go anywhere. People absorb information and and, and it becomes part of them. Just like Chazal knew, because of the massive amaton, because of the discussion, they like the personalities involved, and because this is such an effective educational tool, why, why don't you speculate as we close here again about how you think this could be integrated back into what we call normative learning? I think it's a fantastic question and a good way to conclude the podcast. I'll go back to what I used to say, along with my co-rosh yeshiva Rabbi Pesach Waliki, when we ran Yisodei Torah, where your son Nachemu attended. To us, we, people thought we had like the Yisode method. We were very into teaching Gemara skills, skills in reading, we showed them carefully, skills in reading the Gemara carefully. And people would assume, oh, you have a very specific method. And we sort of had a method, that's true. But it didn't really, we weren't wedded to that method. If somebody found a better way of doing the same thing, we say, of course, as long as it works, do it. If it works better, then you should do that instead. So we had certain methodologies that we that we would use, but nothing was there was no methodology educationally that was the definition of what we were doing. The only thing we were trying to do was figure out what works best and go ahead and do that. If we found a thing that worked better, a method that was a better way of teaching Gemara, we'll switch to that, whatever works for every individual teacher. I think the same thing is true for podcasting. And if people will end up learning better, it might take a long time before schools understand that and accept it. But if people, an individual, a group, whoever can learn better through having a machine with audio with headphones on, then that's what we should do. And I have a feeling it will happen. Even over the past years, when we've seen Zoom school, I have a couple of kids in Bar-Ilan right now. My son last year, Ephraim, he's in the business school there. And his first year in Bar-Ilan, he had Zoom school every day. He didn't go to, to Bar-Ilan a single time during the year, except once he had to show up there for some reason. All of his classes were on Zoom. And that was actually better for him. He found it much easier to learn over Zoom. This year, they have some classes in person. And my son and my daughter, who's also in Bar-Ilan, they said there are some teachers who refuse to have it over Zoom. And it's a, I think it's a chaval, like because of a traditional idea of you have to have a frontal lecture. If somebody learns better over Zoom and there's no harm in putting a camera, then the person will be less distracted not having anyone else and he's in the room by himself. Why not do that? I think it takes a long time for people to be able to, to, to change the methodologies they've been doing for tens or, or hundreds of years. But I think it's going to happen eventually. I have a feeling that because podcasting is well edited if done right, and therefore it's carefully constructed, it's entertainment as well as, as well as education, 
If it's done well, I think that it will move into that way. How that's going to affect schools overall, I don't know. But as long as it works, then we should move in that direction. If a teacher says, I have a student who will learn better via podcast, then let's hope there'll be more podcasts for that. There's no reason that the old models have to remain the only ones in place. Whatever works best in teaching. And, and I think just like, you know, Rav Amil, uh, who I know you're, you're familiar with his works, Amidas Lachaker Aloha, you know, he took basic lumdisha principles that everybody was talking about and went through the effort of articulating them in a terminology that they can now be used and seen as different from each other. I think in the same way, we need to, both of us who are from the yeshiva world, need to explain that this isn't just a TED Talk. We have to explain to them what podcasting is. You're right, a Zoom shear is not, a podcast is not a Zoom shear. A podcast is and we know that we grab the person because we have the, uh, the, the, the dynamism between the parties, because there's a little bit of shtick in it as well, because, mm-hmm. and, and that gets the person part of it, that, that, that keeps the person uh, transfixed there, and, 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 and then it can be a trigger in ways that a, a frontal Zoom shear can't. Look, I've been giving Zoom Shurim for two years plus almost. Uh, well, we are definitely in the cloud together. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> But there's enough space for both of us. Scott, thanks a lot again. Rabbi Scott Kahn, jewishcoffeehouse.com is the where is where we can uh, they can find you, right? Is that the... Uh, Absolutely. That's the, right? that's the place. And That's, I thank you so much for having me today. This was a lot of fun. Thank okay, you. good. Look, and I expect to be on your program very, very soon. You believe, one of them, believe it. One, yeah. of, one of your many ones. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.